Today we are continuing this series called The Blameless Project, looking at what blame is, why we do it, and how we can do it less. Turns out blame's not a good thing. So far in this series, we've learned a number of different things about blame. For instance, we have learned that blame is natural. Since creation and the fall, and in the Garden of Eden, blame has marred all of our relationships. Our brains are actually wired to blame in order to protect us. There's this primitive part of our brain that we sometimes call the monkey brain that has historically served a very important role. The deep part of our brain that can react in a split second that protected us from lions and from enemy tribes and from imaginary dogs when Chris is on a run. I'm fairly certain I'm never going to start a story with, last week I was on a run and <laughs> it's just never going to happen. But it's that same part of our brain that triggers us when we feel attacked or when we feel blamed. And in an instant, we can react emotionally and even physically. Our heart rate goes up. Our faces flush. Our, our breathing comes faster. And we blame. It's natural. It's how our brain works. And so the good news is it's not our fault. It's our brain's fault, right? It's natural, it's normal, everybody does it, and yet we also have learned that blame is destructive. Blame hurts others, but it actually hurts us as well. And science actually bears this out. Uh, ben Dadner, in his book, Credit and Blame at Work, points to a number of studies that have been done on this subject of blame. One of the studies, for instance, at the University of Connecticut analyzed the results of 22 studies looking at the results and the effects that blaming others has. 77% of those studies showed that when an individual blames others, they were actually worse off for having done so, both emotionally and even physically. And in the remaining 23%, there was absolutely no benefit that was shown from blaming. In other words, Across all the studies they looked at, blaming is ineffective at best. And for the majority of people, it was actually harmful to them to blame. In another study conducted by Harvard Medical School, psychiatrist George Valent showed that people who projected or blamed other people for their misfortunes were less able to adjust to the changing events in their own lives. He says this, no one is harder to reason with than the person who projects blame. Another study done by psychiatrist Leslie Phillips at Worcester State Hospital found that the more people fell into the pattern of blaming others in their lives for their problems, the worse they became at dealing with their life in general. They were just worse at life when they blamed other people. In other words, people who blame others pay a serious price for doing so. Dadner concludes, People who get stuck in the habit of chronically blaming others are more likely to derail their careers or the companies they lead. And I would extend that to derail their families and their marriages and their parenting and their friendships. Yes, you see, blame isn't just a personal problem. It's destructive to everyone involved. But on the other hand, blame is easy. Right? I mean, it's, it's, we're wired to do it. It comes naturally. It's like a natural talent for us. And we've seen it modeled for us our entire lives. Blame is easy. But it keeps us from doing the hard work of identifying and fixing the real and often complex and subtle underlying issues beneath the issues. The issues behind the issues. Douglas Stone, in his book, Difficult Conversations, says this. Focusing on blame is a bad idea. Not because it's hard to talk about, nor because it can injure relationships and cause pain and anxiety. Many subjects are hard to discuss and have potentially negative side effects and are nonetheless important to address. 
Focusing on blame is a bad idea because it inhibits our ability to learn what's really causing our problems and to do anything meaningful to correct it. It's easy to blame, but it short-circuits the far more important work of figuring out what's really going on. You see, blame is inaccurate. It's weird, even though we've been blaming since we've been born. We've been blaming since the beginning of time. We've had so much practice blaming, it turns out we're not very good at it, right? Most of the time, we're not very accurate. Perhaps that's because we're not working out of our logical brain. We're working out of our monkey brain, and our monkey brain isn't very good at math or blame. Datner says it this way, it's rare that we ever blame the right people for the right thing, for the right reasons, at the right time, and in the right way. Most of the time, our brains aren't very good at being very good at blame. But not always, right? I want to be careful here. There are times when our brains are accurate. There are times when blame is accurate. Sometimes, you know what, our, our spouses do horrible things to us. Sometimes our boss is a monster. Sometimes good people do bad things. And sometimes bad people do very bad things. Sometimes blame is necessary. Stone in his book says this, There are situations in which focusing on blame is not only important, but essential. Our legal system is set up to apportion blame, both in the criminal and civil courts. Assigning blame publicly against clearly articulated legal or moral standards tells people what's expected of them and allows society to exercise justice. So sometimes blame is necessary. Sometimes we must establish blame and consequences and punishments and all that comes with that, but it comes at a very high cost. Legally, relationally, financially, emotionally, in legal courts and divorce courts, it's necessary, but it's tragic. There's a place to write this in your notes. Blame isn't always inaccurate, but it's always incomplete. It's not the whole story. Even when we blame others, we're completely right. It's justified and it's necessary. What they did was completely wrong. It's still not the whole story. And what we know from this research and from these studies is that even when blame is completely justified, even when we have every right to blame, it still damages us. It's the collateral damage to the wounds that we've suffered at the hands of another Blame is our first impulse, but we must make it our last resort. Blame is easy and it's natural. Blame is even sometimes necessary, but blame is like the nuclear option. Blame, blame is what you do when there is nothing else that can be done. You see, blame ends the conversation and starts the fight. And when that happens, we're done identifying the real underlying issues. We're done trying to find solutions. And all that's left to do is to, to figure out our defense or their consequence. But it's how we've lived our whole lives. It's how our brains are wired. We're not even aware a lot of the times that we're doing it. It just comes naturally to us. as an automatic response in stressful situations. And perhaps that is a big part of the problem. It's like our brains are on autopilot. Our reaction is on autopilot. We aren't even aware because so much of what's happening in blame is occurring in that deep-seated part of our brain, that primitive part of our brain, our monkey brain. But what if our monkey brain didn't get to have the last word? 
What if our fear and our emotions and our desire to protect ourselves, didn't, we didn't allow it to motivate us to blame and in blaming do more damage in an already bad situation? What if we, became, what if we blamed others less and became more mindful? Mindful, that's a weird word. It's a word that we don't use a whole lot in everyday life. It's a word that sounds kind of new agey. What does it mean? Let's see what Google says it means, because Google knows everything. According to Google, mindfulness is a conscious awareness of something. That sounds good, right? It says there are similar words, like aware of, conscious of, alive to, sensible of, alert to. I like these at the end here. Wary of, cognizant of, wise to, hip to. We should be more hip to, I think. (laughs) It says the opposites are heedless or oblivious. The second definition that it gives is this, focusing one's awareness on the present moment. What if we could blame less by becoming more mindful, more present, more aware, and maybe even a little wary of, cognizant of, hip to our blame reaction, mindful of what's happening in us, mindful of what's happening to those around us in these situations, mindful to what's triggering us to react the way that we're reacting. What if we could just become less oblivious? That feels like a win, right? But how? Well, here in Amanda, we actually have a process around this. It's a biblical framework based on the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 7 and 18. Looking at how do we go beyond blame and try to find restoration in health. It's a biblical framework that helps us blame less and become more mindful. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a a Bible uh, at home, we'd love to send you home with one today. There's a stack of them at the table in the back. Well, chapters 5 through 7 of the book of Matthew are commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus talking on a number of different subjects, from sex to anger to caring for the poor to, to money to all of these different things. It's Jesus basically presenting the ethics of the kingdom of God. And then here at the end of the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus says these words, Do not judge others and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Jesus has just spent the last two chapters outlining for them, teaching for them the ethics of the kingdom of God, which is awesome, right? The problem is we humans prefer to apply those ethics to others more than we apply them to ourselves. And Jesus calls that judging. We might call it blame. And I think in these words, Jesus is saying, I'm not teaching you all this stuff so you can beat each other over the heads with it. This is for you. Uh, As a parent, I'm constantly telling my kids, you know what? You're in charge of you. I'm in charge of your sibling. I know what your sibling did. I'm in charge of them. You're in charge of you. And trying to figure out how you can actually grow and be better at this. And I think this is Jesus saying something very similar. He's saying, who are you to judge? Do you know the heart of the person you're judging? Do you know their story? Do you know why they're doing what they're doing? Do you know the hurt and the pain and the addiction that is causing them to act the way that they're acting? No. Only God who knows our hearts can judge. And you're not God. You focus on how you're doing it, living out this kingdom way. Let's be clear, this passage is often ripped out of context and made to mean something like nobody gets to correct anybody as long as everybody's taking care of themselves will just be fine. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying be intolerant. Let's, it's clear what he says in the next verse. 
And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Again, if we stop there, we could say, well, as long as everybody's taking care of the logs in their own eye, we should be fine. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. The point of this passage is helping your friend. It's helping your friend to remove the speck in their eye. But in order to do that, we need to get the log out of our own eye so that we could see well enough to deal with the speck in their eye. And we can only do that if we first deal with our own stuff. We can only see clearly what the real underlying issues are if we've done the work of seeing clearly. There's a place to write this in your notes. The journey beyond blame starts with us becoming more mindful of our own story. When we're in that situation where we feel that strong impulse to blame, or we feel like we're being blamed, we can feel the monkey brain starting to take over, winding up, ready to take over the conversation. It's in that moment when we can be mindful, when we can stop and dial down the emotion that we're feeling. And then having recognized that we're in this moment, do a little assessment in that moment. What's going on in me? What triggers happened in this conversation, this look, this thing that they said that has caused me to feel the way that I'm feeling? What hurts am I bringing into this conversation? What fears, what tapes from my past are playing in my head right now, telling me that I'm not good enough, or that I haven't worked hard enough, or that I'm not talented enough, that I'm not young enough, or I'm not old enough? What's going on in me in this moment? What are the issues behind this issue? It's the idea of being mindful in the moment, pausing the monkey brain and engaging our far more helpful human brain. Right? Danner says these words, self-awareness is the foundational ingredient to being able to change the situation. Knowing your personal history and understanding your triggers is the most reliable way to avoid the traps of the blame game. It's why we've created these bracelets, to in the moment be able to be reminded that there is another way. We don't have to react based on our monkey brain, based on our emotions. If we want to move beyond blame, we must first become more mindful of our own stories. Not so that we become a doormat, not that we can take on all the blame of every situation, but that we can be aware of ourselves. The goal is to blame less. Others certainly, but as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, also blame ourselves less. But that doesn't change the fact that there's still a real issue out there. There's still something that needs to change. There's still conflict. There's still a speck in my friend's eye. There's still a fight over what's for dinner and whose job is it to plan dinner anyway? <laughs> a little too personal, sorry. <laughs> we start with self-reflection, but then that needs to move on to a real conversation, a conversation one-on-one. -on -one. If we want to move beyond blame, we need to become more mindful of others' stories. Again, we go back to the words of Jesus here in Matthew 18. He says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. I think at first glance, it's easy to look at that, back, that verse and feel like we've taken a step backward. Like Jesus is saying, you know what? Go to them, accuse them, and if they confess and say that you're right and they're wrong, then you win the fight. It's easy to say that, but we have to remember a couple of things. 
First of all, we're reading these words through sort of our modern lens of blame often, blame first, blame, you win the blame fight, right? But that's not what Jesus is doing. He's actually employing an existing Jewish law which forbid anyone from publicly accusing anyone else. In fact, the penalty for doing that was severe. There was a process by which you needed to establish a one-on-one conversation so that you could come together, put your heads together, and actually establish what had happened to hear what the other person had to say. Secondly, we have to remember that the speaker here is Jesus, who in the same book just a couple of chapters ago had laid out what a kingdom community looked like and framed this conversation by saying, don't judge and get the log out of your own eye before you try to fix someone else's eye. Back in the very first uh, week of this series, we looked at the story of Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit, and it's a pretty clear-cut case. God said, don't, and they did, right? They deserved to be blamed, But God, in that moment, in the very first opportunity to blame, instead chooses to ask a question, where are you? And it's not a geographical question. God knew where they were. God knew that they were hiding in fear and in shame. It's a relational question. Where are you? What if where are you was our first default question. I think here Jesus is saying, have a where are you conversation. Do the work of knowing your own story, but then go. If they've sinned against you, go to them, Jesus says, just as I did in the garden. Have a where are you conversation. What would it look like if that was our default response? Where are you? What's going on in you? What brought you to this place? How do we get here? And where would you rather be? Note that there's a big difference between a where are you conversation and a let me tell you where you're at conversation. (laughs) Totally different conversations, actually. A where are you conversation seeks to understand more than to be understood. A where are you conversation is about trying to understand how the other person feels and what they they think and, and how they got here and what motivates them. Why are they feeling the way they're feeling? When good, smart, otherwise loving people do stupid things... The smart thing to do is to try to figure out how we didn't see it coming, how we both contributed to it, and then most importantly, how do we prevent this from going forward? How do we change this? Douglas Stone makes a helpful distinction between blame and what he calls the contribution system. He says that heart blame is about judging and contribution is about understanding. Blame, he says, is about judging and looks backward. It's about sitting across the table from someone and prosecuting that person, offering them the role of the accused in this trial. And nobody wants that role. And so they do what an accused person does. They, they try to defend themselves. Contribution, by contrast, the, the contribution system is about understanding and it looks forward. It's about getting up from the table, and as Chris talked about, sitting on the other side, the same side of the table as the other person, and naming that issue. The contribution system then takes that issue and places it on the table, and it's the issue that is on trial, not the person. It's about coming together from the same side of the table and talking about how each has contributed to the problem. It's the problem on trial, not the person. And then having named the problem and identified how each party has contributed to the problem, The contribution system then asks, what do we change going forward? Blame is easy. Blame is natural. This process is not easy, and it's not 
natural. It's hard. It, it requires us using an entirely different part of our brain. It, it requires us to go out of the systems we've learned our whole lives and to fight the natural triggers that are in us. But if we persevere, if we do this work, if we work this muscle, we begin to learn about ourselves and about others. We become learners in these relationships. We develop the skills to be mindful, to address the real issues at hand. And we learn to find a more balanced picture of how each of us has contributed. Stone points this out, and I think it's helpful. Finding your contribution doesn't in any way negate the other person's contribution. Recognizing that everyone involved in the situation has contributed to the problem doesn't mean that everyone has contributed equally. This isn't about apportioning blame. This is about understanding what has contributed to the situation. And sometimes that works. You win. But as Jesus said, the goal isn't to win the fight. It's to win the person back. This is about restoration and relationship. And sometimes it works. And sometimes it doesn't. And Jesus addresses that too. Continuing the next verse. But if you're unsuccessful... Take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Jesus says, if it doesn't work, go back and bring others with you. But I think this is one of the many, many, many times that Jesus is teaching where you want to be like, yeah, could we get just a few more details, Jesus? <laughs> like, who do you bring? Is it a priest? Is it a counselor? Is it friends? But we don't get those details. But looking at the other teachings of Jesus, looking at other passages in Scripture, I can tell you pretty clearly what I think it doesn't mean. I don't think it means go find a couple of friends who already agree with you and think that you're right and he's wrong and they're there to back you up and to beat him down. I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean that. I think it means when the conversation breaks down, it's okay to bring others in if, and it's an important if, if they are there to help continue this process. The question is, what are these other people here to do? Help you blame? Help you win? Help you with your case? Or to help you understand? Help you resolve? You see, this is still part of the contribution system, helping you to be objective and identify more clearly how each party has contributed, and maybe more importantly, how both of you can move forward. But as Jesus points out, even that doesn't always work. Next verse. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then, if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or corrupt tax collector. If the person still refuses to listen, then there are consequences. Note that it's only after we've done all the work, it's only after all of that has failed to work, only then do we get to the place where blame is perhaps appropriate, where blame is perhaps necessary, and where judgment can be passed, and the person is removed from fellowship. But note, as we talked about from the beginning, even when blame is necessary and appropriate, even when it's necessary to maintain decorum and to maintain community and to maintain standards that everyone can agree to, even when it's necessary, it comes at a very high cost, a tragic cost. It damages everyone. As we know from Genesis, we were created to be in community. We are created for relationship. It is not good for man to be alone. And so here, when blame is necessary, it's removing the person from community. Blame destroys community. Blame needs to be our last 
resort because blame is a big deal. Use it carefully. Use it wisely. Use it mindfully. Blame is like using a hammer to remove something that's stuck in your teeth. It'll work, <laughs> but at what cost? But we don't always have to get there. It's why we do these where are you conversations. Part of what happens when we have these where are you conversations is that we become learners of ourselves, but also of others. We understand more what has brought us and what has brought them to this place. We actually become more mindful of our own stories and others when we become more mindful of our triggers. But before we wrap up today, I think it's really helpful and important to look at where Jesus goes right after this passage. This passage that's about difficult conversations. This passage that's about confronting the people who have offended us and who have sinned against us. About these where are you conversations. And the very next part of the scripture is in the context of these difficult conversations that Jesus makes this promise. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among you. It's a passage that we often take out and we think that it means at worship services or at prayer meetings. And certainly those are true. But it was in this context, this painful, difficult conversation that Jesus says, when you have these where are you conversations with a fellow believer, I'm with you in that. My spirit is present and at work. I'm encouraging you and cheering you on as you do this difficult work of seeking restoration. And then in the very next verse, Peter comes to Jesus. And again, in the same context of how when someone sins against you, he says, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus replies, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. See, blame, even when it's justified, is destructive to them and to us. But forgiveness offers the opportunity for restoration. And Jesus goes on to illustrate this with a story of a man who had gotten himself way in over his head. He owed the king millions of dollars, millions and billions of dollars. If you look at the original context, it would have been more money that was in circulation in the entire country at the time. It's an impossible sum of money that this man owed the king. He deserved punishment. He deserved to be thrown in prison. And yet the king forgives him his debt. And then this man, who should have been very mindful of all that he had simply been forgiven, instead is oblivious and goes to his fellow servant who owes him like 20 bucks and insists that the man pay him right in that moment. And when he can't pay him, the man is thrown into prison until he can pay the debt back. And of course, when the king hears this, he's furious. And he brings the man before him and he says these words. And the king called in the man who'd forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? We talked about this last night. It's a small church. And it's difficult to make the direct connection between forgiveness and blame. But there's this idea that... It's a position, it's a stance, it's saying, I'm going into this relationship ready to forgive. I'm going into this where are you conversation in a spirit of humility. I'm going into this where are you conversation more mindful of how much I've been forgiven. And I think that's the point. There's a place to write this in your note. We become more mindful of how much we've been forgiven. The incredible debt that we have been forgiven 
There's a name for that sort of ridiculous grace, this unmerited favor, this undeserved mercy and love extended to us by the king. The early church called it charity. I think that's another one of those words that we don't really use much anymore. And if we do, it, it means something like giving a dollar to a poor person. But we become more mindful by practicing charity. It's a word that's lost its power over the decades, but Thomas Aquinas called it the most excellent of the virtues. And he holds that charity is an absolute necessity for anyone, any human that wants to experience happiness. It's from the Latin caritas, and it essentially means like love acted out. It means understanding the grace and the love that has been given to us and then extending that love and grace, becoming conduits of that grace to others in our lives. It's that stance of going into these conversations ready to extend grace because we are mindful of the grace that has been extended to us. We become more mindful by practicing charity. Blame is natural. We've done it all of our lives. But we can move beyond blame. We can be move beyond blame by becoming more mindful. And we become more mindful by practicing charity to one another, but even to ourselves, as we'll see in a couple of weeks. Learning to see ourselves the way the king sees us and then extending that same charity to those around us. Stay with us as we continue in this journey, digging into how we can live this out. Pray with me. Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. We acknowledge that in this broken world, we, we do things, we say things, we react in ways that are not honoring to you. God, we praise you and we thank you for the grace that you have shown us. God, help us to move beyond just simply knowledge of that grace and understanding of that grace through an experiencing of that grace. Jesus Christ, make us mind through, mindful through your Holy Spirit in us of the incredible debt that you've forgiven. That we might go into our relationships, into these difficult situations, into our workplaces and our marriages and our homes and our schools, aware of who we are. Free us from the shame that so often drives these conversations. Help us to love as you love. We ask it in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.